In January 2006, in New York, the patient of a well-known psychiatrist draws the face of a man that has been repeatedly appearing in her dreams. On more than one occasion, that man has given her advice on her private life. The woman swears she has never met the man in her life. That portrait lies forgotten on the psychiatrist's desk for a few days, until one day, another patient recognizes that face and says that the man has often visited him in his own dreams. He also claims that he has never seen that man in his waking life. The psychiatrist decides to send the portrait to some of his colleagues that have patients with recurrent dreams. Within a few months, four patients recognize the man as a frequent presence in their own dreams. All the patients refer to him as this man. From January 2006 until today, at least 2,000 people have claimed they have seen this man in their dreams in many cities all over the world. Los Angeles, Berlin, Sao Paulo, Tehran, Beijing, Rome, Barcelona, Stockholm, Paris, New Delhi, Moscow, and etc. At the moment, there is no ascertained relation or common trait among the people that have dreamed of seeing this man. Moreover, no living man has ever been recognized as resembling the man of the portrait by the people who have seen this man in their dreams. Have you heard the story of- and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This is telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello, and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome back, everybody. Hi, everyone. We hope that you have been resting well. Sleep is very important for your health. You know, and I would like you all to take a moment before you go to bed and not listen to the show. Turn it off. This will keep you up at night. This is for daytime listening. Or if you're a spooky, spooky person, listen to us at night. You'll never sleep again. Maybe you'll get more done. Actually, it could up your pre- your productivity and, you know, keep you awake for hours on end. Because we have a pretty impressive back catalog. Don't tell people not to listen to the show. I'm not. Now I'm saying that you'll be a more productive member of society and never sleep again should you choose to listen to our show right before bed. Sure. So I've been told by our listeners. Many people. <laughs> Many people. We do want to welcome all of you back. We want to remind you that you can reach out to us on any of our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Just a Story Pod. Check out our website, JustAStoryPod.com, to find out more information about every episode, including all of our fun, fun sources. And you can also see some of Sam's artwork. She does artwork for each episode. You said that like I don't, and I need you to. You do? <laughs> you do? I do. I do artwork for every episode, and you can see that there. And at that same site, you can also find a link to our merchandise shop, and that features said artwork as well. Another handy-dandy link that is present on our website is a link to our Patreon page, and that's a place you can go if you just feel like being extra generous today. Yeah, there you'll get access to some extra episodes, get other fun prizes like stickers, discounts on our merch store, and also help support the show. There's one other way you can reach out to us. And that's the Urban Legend Hotline. And that number is 512-222-3375. And upon dialing this number, you will reach our voicemail where you can regale us with a lovely tale all your own. Be it urban legend, folktale, personal story, hey, a song maybe. Whatever you're in the mood for that day. We might even use it on the show. We may. 
All right, Sam, back to the story at hand. This hand? No, the other one. That hand? Yes. This man? This man. Have you seen this man? Have you seen this man? I feel like I've seen him cast as like roommate number three in every college movie and also like creepy neighbor in every sitcom. I was thinking creepy uncle, definitely. But he also looks like the guy that's balding too early that's not really a convincing college student that gets cast in those like B movies, like B comedy movies. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, not in person nor in my dreams have I seen this man. This man. So this man is this drawing? It's like a a sketch. It's a kind of, I guess, I guess it's a forensic sketch, you know, like based on a loose description. No, no, the person who saw the man actually did the sketch, right? Right. So according to the website, in January 2006 in New York, a psychiatrist patient drew the face of this man that had been repeatedly appearing in her dreams. Wait, I'm going to pause you right there. What website? This man. I think it's .org. Cool. Very disappointed Googlers out there. Yes. I was looking for this man, and all I found is this website about a drawing. About this man. Not that man. Sounds like a Craigslist (laughs) missed connection page or something. So, okay. So, she had been having dreams about this this man, man, and she drew a sketch of this man. Yeah. And showed it to her psychiatrist. Yeah, and she swore she'd never met the man in her life. Mm-hmm. And so she left it with her psychiatrist and just you know, kind of sat on their desk for a few days. It's really unprofessional. There was no personal information on the drawing. Still, HIPAA protections as, as they are, I think it's probably unethical. But another patient just happens to glance over and see the drawing. And they're like, that's my uncle. And they're like, that man's been in my dreams. This man's been in my dreams? This, that man. This, that man. That, this man. We have a lot of fun with articles on this show. And he also claimed he's never seen that man in his waking life. So the psychiatrist is really curious about this. Sends it to some of his colleagues that have patients with recurrent dreams. Within a few months, four patients recognize the man as a frequent presence in their own dreams. And all the patients refer to him as this man. As opposed to what, Donnie? That man. Him, that guy, dude. that guy, this dude, dude, this dude would have been way catchier. So the website, which started on October 2009, is attempting to just, you know, spread the word about this man and really to collect stories. It mm-hmm. wants to see if other people are dreaming about this man. Okay. Creepy uncle man. Creepy uncle man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the website insists that since January 2006... At least 2000 people from all over the world have claimed they have seen this man. This man. In, in their, their dreams, dreams, not in real life. Exactly. Okay. With reports coming from Los Angeles, Berlin, Sao Paulo, Tehran, Beijing, Rome, Barcelona, Stockholm, Paris, New Delhi, and Moscow. And the website also features photos of flyers from around the world, mm. like posted around the world. Because you can download a flyer. Print it out. Print it out and post it. And I'm sure it has like a little blurb about how everybody's dreaming about him. Yes. Like, have you dreamed this man? Fun. Not going to say it's priming. Not going to say it. Not going to say it. There's also portraits. People have said they dreamed it. They drew the man up and they posted it or sent it into the website. So I guess that I should come clean. My first reaction upon hearing this story is so... (laughs) I don't know, like, I don't think it's that creepy. Well, let's listen to some of their stories. Okay. I have had this recurrent dream for some years now. A tall, dark man shows me a picture 
and asked me if I recognized my father in it. The man in the picture is this man I have never seen before. He looks nothing like my dad. Nevertheless, I inexplicably answer that I do recognize my father. At this point, I usually wake up feeling very peaceful. Other times, the dream continues, and I'm standing before my father's grave. I place some flowers on the ground, and I realize the photograph on the tombstone is missing. It's a creepy dream. Creepy dream, right? Creepy dream no matter what. All right, here's some more. I've always had this dream of flying in the sky over my city and observing my friends from up there. Since I moved to another house, I started meeting this man while flying. Not every single time that I have this dream about flying, but often enough, he flies too, but he never speaks. Another, I've never had a homosexual relationship or even fantasies, but I dream about having sex with this man all the time. I must admit, he has a lot of imagination and he pleases me. Sometimes when I wake up, I discover that I have had nocturnal emissions. Oh, so he looks like the kind of guy you'd have anonymous sex with and then feel really dirty about later. He kind of does. He kind of does. He's got a real Craigslist vibe. He does. Real like bottom of the barrel grinder vibe. Or Tinder. Or Tinder. Yeah. So he has kind of become a part of pop culture. Mm-hmm. You see him all over social media. He is in the movie Lucid Dream, a South Korean sci-fi film. And he is recently featured in season 11 of The X-Files. What? And the episode's called This. Man, this man. This. No, it's this, this man. You're missing the punchline. And he's actually in more than that. He's in the background of several episodes of the season. Of this season. This season. <laughs> the most <laughs> recent season, season 11. When you first sent me that screen cap, I was like, oh, holy hell, I didn't know he'd been around this long. And then I remember they rebooted the show. Rebooted the show. Yeah, it was really. They rebooted it. They continued it. Whatever the fuck that means. Come on. Let's just acknowledge that there are no new ideas and move on with our lives. There are tons of new ideas. They're all on Netflix. Basic television does not have any new idea. So there are numerous parody websites, you know, making fun of the flyer. Mm -hmm. They'll have just different faces kind of drawn like that. And my favorite being Shaq. (laughs) Like you wouldn't remember. I remember every time I've ever seen Shaq. Shaq lives where we live. Yeah, Yeah, we see him all the time, literally. So some of the dreams are creepy, but dreams can be creepy just in general. Like, I don't... Yes. Th- it's not his presence that makes the dead father dream creepy. No, it is creepy no matter what. And he's kind of just a dude. Like, he looks like a dude. He doesn't... It's not like dreaming of a the same even geometric figure or anything. Like, it's... He's so nondescript. But what's creepy is that many people have seen the same person. Mm-hmm. So, the website does offer a few possible explanations okay i bet these will intrigue me and i will get it now so one theory that he's it's religious of some sort so he's like god no. or an angel no. or something a demon maybe yeah and they propose all this is from their website that this could be related to why people like trust him and why he like gives advice and people follow his advice i mean he drinks. is her father did people report trusting him and yeah, feeling at ease yeah. with him? So he's not a threatening presence usually? Well, no. He's usually okay. not. He's usually not. The, this is related to Jungian archetypes and collective unconsciousness. Okay. You know I like that one. You know I like Jung. Um, that he is a dream surfer. Is that like something Stanley forgot to copyright? 
Pretty much. What is it? So it's a man who can enter people's dreams by means of psychological skills. So, so it's like somebody that's really good at like lucid dreaming, astral projection, that kind of it, stuff. They can project themselves into your dreams. Okay, in that case, no one should feel safe with him. He's dream. He's a peeping Tom dream creepy. creeper. Yeah. So it says, some believe that in real life, this man looks like the man in the dreams. Others think that the man in the dreams looks completely different from his real life counterpart. And some people seem to believe that behind this man, there is a mental conditioning plan developed by a major corporation. Or Russia. Yeah, or read government or whatever. You know, it's a conspiracy. Like you know. propaganda going awry and alive, kind of. Yeah, kind of men who stare at goats, MK Ultra, Psyops. Psyops, yes. Okay. Uh, dream imitation. What is that? This is from the website. This is a scientific psychosociological theory which claims that this phenomenon has arisen, arisen casually and has progressively developed by imitation. Basically, when people are exposed to this phenomenon, they become so deeply impressed that they start seeing this man in their dreams. I would put lots of chips on that one. It's like if this, is a, if this is a craps table. I like that the website has some like ideas like, like that. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, here's a crazy idea. A silver dream surfer. That's all I can think is Silver Surfer when I hear it. Like, it, it just is impossible to take it seriously. I can think of, like, Matthew McConaughey. Surfing your dreams. <laughs> Surfing right into your dreams, man. All right, all right, all right. All right, all right, all right. Let's just fly, man. Why doesn't he look like Matthew McConaughey? Let's go for a, let's go for a drive in my Lincoln. Oh, my God, the new Lincoln commercial. You know what? I can tell you've had some problems in your day, man. And I'm just here to help you let that all go so you can focus on what really matters. The beat of my bongo. Baba chap cha. All right, all right, all right. Don't mind me. So that's my new favorite theory. It's Matthew McConaughey Dream Surfer. If it was a Matthew McConaughey Dream Surfer, I think the world would be a better place. Like, I know he gets on everyone's nerves, but I feel like if he were your own personal Matthew McConaughey and he was like, you know who your hero should be? Yourself in 10 years. And me. And me. <laughs> we'd, we'd, we'd be okay with him. I think you'd have a lot less people worrying. <laughs> or maybe more. He keeps taking off his shirt. He takes off his shirt every night. Have you seen True Detective? What if it's like True Detective? Another one is daytime recognition. This theory states that the apparitions of this man are purely casual. And normally we do not remember precisely the faces we see in our dreams. And the image of this man would thus be an instrument which, in the subject's waking life, facilitates recognition of an undefined, onierical image. This is saying, hey, you know how many times the wrong guy gets pulled out of a photo array by an eyewitness? Do you really expect it to be better with dreams? Something like that. Okay. Let's run through some of these. How about that? Does that sound like fun? All right, all right, all right. Where do you want to start? Oh, with the dream surfer. With the dream surfer. Of course. So. So. No what? (laughs) Just no. That's not a thing. He's a dream pirate. Everything's a thing. It's not a thing. Have you learned nothing? <laughs> Everything is a thing. Okay. First of all, if somebody has this much mental focus and this big of a need to like mess with people and it's negative, they're busy. Doing what? Being trolls on the internet. Oh, you're right. And if it's positive, they're already volunteering with 7,000 charities. And how are they at home honing their skill? They're bound to have a job if they're productive or something, like some kind of project. They're not just going to lay around in their pajamas all the time and hop in and out of folks' dream. Why not? Because life, Jacob. Because reasons. Have you not seen Inception? Okay. 
I take it all back. If it were a team of highly skilled operators. What if it's the air? He would look better. <laughs> Why do we keep coming back to this? Like some average, this guy just looks like such an average guy. And I think that's probably what it is. So well, I can't believe he is part of some super secret spy dream network. <sighs> Why not? But so, but this is like a new agey kind of idea, along with astral projection, that you can project yourself into people's dreams, right? Yes, but now that you said the thing about Inception, I'm taking it all back. I'm like, yeah, maybe. Maybe so. Is this like Christopher Nolan's prototype that's broken and just like locked in? It's probably experimental yeah. mode. Exactly. Like somebody forgot to turn the beta testing off. So Inception. Basically, Dream Surfer equals Inception. Could be. Okay. So maybe that's a thing. Sure. Maybe. I'm, okay, you've got me to maybe. But I have no, no good research on it because when I tried to search Dream Surfers, seriously, all I got were Silver Surfer things. Oh, and then I tried to search Orionaut. An Orionaut. Which is a cool word for a person who voyages through dreams, like an astronaut ver- voyages through space. Such or, a great name. You know, cosmonaut is Russian. Through the cosmos. <laughs> is Russian. An Argonaut. Through Argus. What? On the Argus. <laughs> I'm to maybe. Um, and those things that all came up put me in no. So they were like very personal stories. No one had done like a survey. No like academic papers exist on said phenomena. Yeah. Um, there's not even like a really well constructed like pop new age book on it. There has been some research on lucid dreams, mm-hmm. you know, which are real things where you can control your dream a little more, kind of control what you're doing within your dream. And you can do different things to encourage lucid dreaming. Uh huh. <laughs> and even some supplements, which I will let you Google on your own. Don't go- tell can- people to Google supplements, it's not medical advice. That's why I'm not telling what it is they are. Can induce lucid dreams. Fantastic. So in addition to the new age kind of take on lucid dreaming, astral projection, etc., etc., there are some very old ideas about such things in many cultures throughout the world. Mm-hmm. And one of the cultures I found that really put a an emphasis on this was kind of like the Aztec Mexia culture. Okay. As well as many other native American cultures throughout North America. But I found the Aztec tradition interesting because it does not incorporate peyote. We kind of know what peyote does, what it is, what it's for. Hallucinogenic. I feel like you shouldn't talk about drugs. (laughs) I know. I'm like, I'm stopping. (laughs) You know, you can legally do it in the United States. Right, because it's part of a religious practice. If it's part of a religious practice. Now, the drugs that are taken to aid in lucid dreaming are referred to on many a blog as orionautics. Okay. See there? See what we did there? So one substance that, according to this ethnobotanist, I read way too much of on JSTOR that is linked with lucid dreaming in these cultures is Mexican tarragon. Is this why you're going tarragon? It's not. I already had my tarragon growing when I read this, and I don't want lucid dreams. <laughs> and it's also known as Yuhutli. Academic studies, such as those conducted by Siegel in 1977, found that there was evidence that this herb was part of rituals going back to at least the 1500s in this area of the world. For example, a powder containing this herb was blown into the face of people who were about to be sacrificed in order to dull their sensation. Okay. So, different deities associated with different points on the calendar correspond to different messengers, sub-deities. Oh my god, it's so complicated. 
It is complicated. It is so complicated. But basically, there are deities. Follow the taxonomy down, and they're like one under the major deity. Like these would be under the fire god. And there are like 13 different days that go with him, and each of the different day has a different bird. Oh, wow. Interesting. But one of these birds, who is a messenger... A bird messenger. A bird messenger. Deity of sorts. Is known to bring dreams. Okay. Prophetic dreams, important dreams. So you see the theme of like vision questing or like shamanistic trance throughout a variety of cultures. Oh, of course. It's not just like a Native American thing. No. Uh, But the pursuit of high visions was defined by Schuethler in 1973 as a long sleep filled with peculiar dreams and hallucinations. Now, in Native American or Native North American, because this is technically Central American cultures, a lot of times this trance, this desired trance-like state where the visions and the imaginations come, is achieved through smoking tobacco. Tobacco. Right. So we don't have this tobacco today. Why not? (laughs) Because we have work. Where's my Uh, magic tobacco? Was this just like weed? No, it's not. So they've tested this extensively for THC, and it does not seem to be present in any notable quantity. Do they know what the hallucinogenic compound is? So they're looking into that. They do think that the plant has evolved through cultivation to be different. Okay. Okay. So selectively bred. To make you not see things. Oh, what we have. Yes. What we have now. What about what they had then? Well, there's a lot of like ethnographic and botanical research from the mid-19th century that claims that tobacco is pretty much a hallucinogen. So this is Uh, your real wacky tobacco. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So Lane, a researcher, wrote in 1845 that tobacco had similar effects to opium. And then Shaw wrote in 1849 that tobacco causes wild and frightful dreams. And then in 1908, one researcher wrote, well, if you inhale it a certain way, a very forceful way, okay, uh, it can be a hallucinogen, which I don't think we're going to get there uh, today. So... That is one of the theories, is that it's just a different substance that has been cultivated and selectively bred to get rid of those properties, and there is a more pure form in nature that would have you seeing God. Or there was like maybe a certain species Mm -hmm. that they had cultivated to do that. And there is a substance known as Nicotina Rustica, which is used for ritual. Now, it does employ the use of like a more wild tobacco plant, but it's also mixed with other substances, like sumac. Not poison sumac, just sumac. <laughs> that might kill you. Yeah, don't smoke sumac, poison sumac. Nutmeg and Mexican tarragon. Which nutmeg, enough quantity, is can cause hallucinations. Hallucinogenic. So this is usually mixed together and is smoked. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to see someone like go to Costco and get like a giant thing just of nutmeg. Sit, like mix all that together. Well, that was one of my thoughts. And I started looking at this. I was like, ah. Oh. Maybe we're on something. Maybe this man is a side effect of too much spices. Nutmeg. Spices. All it's you know what it is. Huh. Has this been shown to be more common during pumpkin spice latte season? <laughs> maybe it's all of the nutmeg and all of your spiced baked and coffee goods. It's true. Overexposure. But that was my thought is maybe he's a side effect of these of us unknowingly taking in these hallucinogens. Definitely. 
over a prolonged period of time. I hadn't come to pumpkin spice, but you're right. See, that's exactly you it. That's why you keep me around. Yeah. So that's my... See, I'm, a, I'm a doctor. My folklore <laughs> update for you. And my theory is that he's just like a bit of potato in A Christmas Carol, the cause of Jacob Marley appearing. But nutmeg in your latte. Nutmeg in your latte. That's it. So there is my terrible theory that I spent way too much time reading actual <laughs> academic papers to bring to you today. Um, but let's continue with the folklore theme and get off of the science wagon because I should really never drive that. I didn't know you were going to. So let's go to some other ancient gods. We have to talk about the Greek and Romans. Right. This is a major part of both religious practices. Now, the Greeks, as well as the Egyptians, actually, had special dormitories for oh. dream voyagers. Mm. And you would go there and have your dreams. And I thought that was really cool. That is cool. We have the Oracle at Delphi. Sure. Popular reoccurring figure. Of course. All throughout the ages. And she would go into her trance. She would come out. She would tell you your future, your fortunes. And she would tell you to go search for a giant. Right. Hero's Quest. Any luck, you'll find seven. Or an elephant barn. <laughs> you ruin all the fun. You know, some people theorize that, that? they're a little hidey hole where they kept the oracle. Yeah. You know, Delphi. Yeah. Uh, was above like a fault in the yes. earth. And that noxious gases escaped from this crevice. And the oracles would inhale them and get loopy doopy high and tell you to go look for giants. Yeah, that's a fun theory. I don't know if there's anything to that. Of course, everyone in that temple would be high. So I guess maybe that'd make them believe it. It's probably why they were so often recovering elephant bones. But we keep talking about honoriotics, honorionauts. <laughs> so the honori were the gods and demigods in Greco-Roman mythology that ruled over dreams and nightmares. Mm. So they're described in various ways, depending on who you read. If you're reading Homer, if you're reading Ovid, if you're reading Hesiod. Different names, different jobs, different things they do. So, so it's just like all mm-hmm. kinds of fan fiction up in there. Oh, it's fun stuff. So one source says they were dark-winged spirits of dreams, which emerged each night like a flock of bats from their cavernous home in Erebus, the land of eternal darkness beyond the rising sun. The Oniri passed through one of two gates. The first of these was made of horn. It was the source of the prophetic God-sent dreams, while the other was constructed of ivory and was the source of dreams which were false and without meaning. Elephant bones are hero bones, and elephants are to be taken lightly. <laughs> Just mixing metaphors here. So according to some, the leader, their leader is Morpheus. Heard of him. In Sandman, Neil Gaiman. Of course. He is a god who appeared in the dreams of kings. In the guise of a man, bearing messages from the gods. He was the son of sleep and the god of dreams. And the name signifies the fashioner or molder, because he shaped or formed the dreams which appeared to the sleeper. And if you don't want to go write 17 novels right now, you're not paying attention. You can pause and go read the Sandman series by Neil Neil Gaiman. We'll see you in like seven weeks. You've had time to like let your mind be blown. So there were more. There was... Phantasis, who would take the form of inanimate objects in dreams. There was Phobeter, who would take the form of beast, and in some forms was the god of nightmares. Oh. There was Ecclesis, who would bring you true dreams. What does that mean? True dreams, so not dreams that are meant to... Deceive you. Yes. So those are like 
something that carries meaning that's applicable to your life. Yes, yes. And in the Iliad, Zeus sends the Oniri to send false dreams to Agamemnon to urge warfare. It's interesting. I was reading today that Ulysses was forced to interpret his wife's dreams for her and like yes. recognize his own signs and stuff. Dream divination was a major component of Greek culture, ancient mm-hmm. Greek culture. Of course, they have an entire pantheon devoted to the distribution of said dreams. Of course. That's just too much fun. Now, there's a really interesting kind of mythological creature in Asian culture. And I say that because it's in several areas. Okay. <laughs> so it's called the Baku. Like a, it sounds like a Babadook cousin. <laughs> hey, that's not too far off. Babadook. You should pause and watch that, actually. So when a child in Japan wakes from a nightmare, they know exactly what to do. They'll whisper three times, Baku-san, come eat my dream. Baku-san, come eat my dream. Baku-san, come eat my dream. And if their request is granted, the monstrous Baku will come into their room and suck the bad dream away. I feel like we need to introduce more folklore to our children because it would make them more self-sufficient. Like, maybe Odette would not get up in the middle of the (laughs) night if she had a Baku. Deal with it. (laughs) Call this creature in. Well, so this creature is very chimeric. Mm -hmm. It literally was created by the gods in some stories from the leftovers. So it's a platypus. Uh, yes, kind of. So many different descriptions, including the body of a bear, the nose of an elephant, the feet of a tiger, the tail of an ox, the eyes of a rhinoceros. But you may not want your child calling it because Why? it can have a negative side. What does it do? If it's hungry. It might eat them too. might eat all of the dreams. Oh no. The good ones, the aspirations, the hopes, along with the nightmares. It's a very monkey's paw kind of bargain there. So it looks kind of like a taper. Ah. And it actually shares the same kanji as the taper. And looks a lot like it. So Baku have changed over the centuries. In the oldest Chinese legends, they were hunted for their pelts. And they would make blankets out of them. And it was a talisman against illness and the malice of evil spirits. I'm imagining that the malice of evil spirits could take the form of nightmares. Of course. Right. Come to threaten you in the night. And eventually it went to just the image of a Baku over the bed that would offer protection. And during the Tang Dynasty from 618 to 907, there are folding screens decorated with Baku. And when the legend got to Japan, it said when it really took on that dream-eating form. Mm-hmm. So as we talked about on our Slipmouth Woman episode, we talked about different yokai, which if this is a yokai is debatable, you know, it, it's the strict description. You know, a lot of a lot of you know stories went to Japan and they got changed. Mm-hmm. And so you'll find the same story in China and Japan, and they'll have just these interesting little differences and twists. It reminds me of a dream catcher. The image, especially. Just putting the image over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have a dream catcher when you were a kid? I did. I had one I made. Ooh, was it pink? No. I had one someone gave me that was pink. <laughs> but i did i had a dream catcher and i actually had i've never told you this i had a rabbit skin that uh chief rufus gave me oh cool and i had them put together when i was a kid i don't know what happened to the dream catcher i imagine one of my nieces or nephews destroyed it probably the pelt's still at the house somewhere i don't know where it is so it's it's interesting that you said that you know your chief gave it to you well, he didn't um, give me the dream catcher. No, the, well, the pelt. Yeah. You know, and, and, but you know, you can tie them together mm-hmm. because dream catchers have become this kind of universal Native American symbol. Right. 
But they're very old. Like how old? As old as we Time. can tell. Okay. Exactly. And they come from the Chippewa tribe in the Lakota. That's where they're originally from. So they're sort of like Great Lakes region beginnings. Right. Wow, that really has spread. It has. But let's talk about the original story. So this is from Lynn Dearborn's telling of the origin of the drink catcher. Long ago, in the ancient world of the Ojibwe nation, the clans were all located in one general area, and this place was known as Turtle Island. This is the way that old Ojibwe storytellers say how Asibikashi, the spider woman, helped Wanabozu bring the sun back to the people. To this day, the spider woman will build her special lodge before dawn. If you are awake at dawn, as you should be, look for her lodge and you will see this miracle of how she captured the sunrise as the light sparkles on the dew which is gathered there. The spider woman took care of her children, the people of the land, and she continues to do so to this day. When the Ojibwe nation dispersed into the four corners of North America to fill a prophecy, the spider woman had a difficult time making her journey to all those cradle boards. So, the mothers, sisters, and grandmothers took up the practice of weaving the magical webs for their new babies using willow hoops and sinew and cordage made from plants. It is in the shape of a circle to represent how the sun travels each day across the sky. The dream catcher will filter out all the bad dreams and allow only the good thoughts to enter our minds. When we are just Abenuji, you will see a small hole in the center of each dream catcher where those good dreams may come through with the first rays of the sunlight and the bad dreams will perish. When we see the spider woman, we should not fear her, but instead respect and protect her in honor of their origin. The number of the points where the web connects to the hoop are numbered eight for the spider woman's eight legs. So there is some anthropological writing from the beginning of the 20th century where they talk about... You mean the beginning of anthropology? Yeah, whatever. Where they talk about these articles representing spider webs that were usually hung on the hoop of a child's cradle board. And it was said that they, quote, caught any harm that might be in the air as a spider's web catches and holds whatever comes in contact with it. Now, they were really small. They were little wooden hoops about three and a half inches in diameter. Now, you can also see similar traditions with the Pawnee charming netting and the symbolizing their kind of spider woman who was a deity that controlled the buffalo. During the Pan-Indian movement... Mm-hmm. which we discussed in our Ancient Indian Burial Grounds episode. In the 60s and 70s, the dream catchers started to become very popular with other Native American tribes and have come to represent... Just all- Native American culture exactly. generally. Exactly. And so they're sort of neo-traditional, kind of like fry bread. But fry bread just tastes good. Let me tell you about fry bread. <laughs> Tell me. I think it's interesting. So it's, it is, you know, considered a like traditional Mm. Native American food now. And if you go to like reservations, they'll serve it. Mm -hmm. Or if you go to powwows, there was a food truck that had fry bread tacos in Austin. But its origins are like, it's a kind of neo-traditional because it was made from the few things that the native people were given by the government to help survive on the reservations. They were given like So it's a commodity and lard wonder. And they just kinda were like, we're gonna mix some flour and water and fry it and cause that's all we got. And it tastes amazing. Well it's fried bread. <laughs> so of course it does. Just saying gotta admire that ingenuity. That's right. 
That was not a that was not a pun. Oh, good. It was not a pun. I just realized it sounded like one. My whole face went no. <laughs> no. And then, of course, in Judeo-Islamic Christian tradition, you have all of these prophecies coming in dreams to many, many people through in the holy text from Abraham all the way to Muhammad. Well, yes, that's very true. And to me, one of my favorite dream stories when I was a kid was Joseph. Code of Many Colors, Joseph. That one. Loved that Bible story. Donny Osmond? What are you talking about? He was in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dream. I was not allowed to see that. That was sacrilegious. (laughs) I've never seen that. Now I feel sad. Yeah, you're probably better for it. Okay. God spells better, which we would do every four years at my school. You went to Catholic school. I feel like we need to remind people of that. Ching-a-ching-a-ching-a-ching. Godspell Catholic bells. <laughs> I played, did you know I played the Catholic bells in Godspell? You made that up. Yes. <laughs> you thought about it way too long. I was like, I can see him signing up to do that, to hang out with drama club chicks. He nods knowingly. <laughs> hey, uh, I'm pretty good at those Catholic bells. So let me tell you a story. Let's move into the, the next era of dream divination. Yeah, so we're past our religious ideas, our ancient religious ideas. And we're coming up to the old New Age. Old New Age. You mean your favorite? My favorite. Tis the time for spiritualism, psychical research, and the humbug hootenanny that is the late 1800s, early 1900s. This comes from the book, The Fabric of Dreams. Dream Lore and Dream Interpretation, Ancient and Modern, by Mrs. Catherine Parenthetical Taylor Craig. I'm glad they didn't make her use her husband's name. I think they made her. So she's going to tell us a tale. Melody Dream haunts girl from childhood. Marie Hughes spends 10 years trying to catch an elusive tune. A little 8-year-old girl had a dream about 10 years ago in Chicago. She dreamed of sitting before a piano, idly running her fingers over the keys. And at this time, the instrument issued forth the grandest music that she had ever heard. This music haunted her hours of wakefulness, and at night, she always dreamed of the same beautiful composition. As she grew older, the dream of sweet music followed her. Her sleeping hours were filled with mysterious music that haunted her brain. By day, as she practiced at the piano, she sought vainly to play the haunting melody. But while awake, it eluded her. Marie Hughes of Chicago is the girl of the haunting musical dream. After two years striving with the piano masters of Europe, she has been unable to catch the dream melody. She is now a finished pianist, but is not at all satisfied. When I am able to play the music that has run through my mind asleep and awake since I was a little girl, I will feel that I have succeeded as a musician, says Miss Hughes. I don't think that anyone has ever had such a strange dream experience as I have had. If I am ever to play the mysterious haunting piece that's followed me since my childhood, it will be the greatest music in all the world. My dream experience makes me think of the old song, The Lost Chord. At night, when I am asleep, I can hear each note distinctly, and even when I am awake, the mysterious, beautiful melody haunts me. But as I try as I may, I cannot play it on the piano. This tune... She cannot name this tune. But this is the sort of account that is driving this entire new look at the meaning of dreams, the purpose of dreams. What does it all mean? Why can't she catch the melody? It's this borderline between something neurological, something with your memory, something with your motor functions, and magic. 
In the mother? In the mother. Yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> but let us, let us see what she has to say about, about dreams. Now, this is from her introduction. Notwithstanding, it's World War. Just one at the time. Just one. Just one. This was written in 1916. The one to end all of them. Mm-hmm. Someone should have dreamed about that. <laughs> I'm sure they did. They did. Oh, there's tons of stories about mothers dreaming their sons are in peril and finding out. And then I'm like, really? Well, we kind of talked about that a little yeah. bit. Phantasms of the living. Notwithstanding its world war, the 20th century has wrought a truce between the apocalyptic lion and lamb. Science, represented by Dr. Sigmund Freud of Vienna and Dr. Ooh. Carl Jung of Zurich. Ooh. And Morton Prince of Boston. Sure. And Jules Boyce of Paris. And Mr. Havelock Ellis of London. I don't know who any of those people are. I don't think they represent science a bit. And numerous other servants of France, Italy, England, and America has granted the existence of a sixth sense. The subconscious, clairvoyance, crystal gazing, and dream interpretation. Thus, a cosmic circle formed of the thought of ages has merged ultramodernism and ancient myth. The recent cognizance taken of dreams by physiology as well by psychology savors strongly of ancient philosophy and an astonishing similarity between 20th century thought and that of anti-Christianity is apparent in the resuscitated science of dream interpretation. The practice of translating dreams and searching for their meaning was forgotten by the educated classes during the ages intervening between remote antiquity and our own era, albeit it was a certain ex- to a certain extent kept alive by the superstition of the masses, who, despite the ridicule of the enlightened few, clung to their dreams and established a symbolic interpretation thereof. They were a fantastic antidote for the oppression and misery of the lower classes. Marx? What? No, dreams. Dream interpretation. Oppression of the masses? You turn... You, who comes in with Marx? Bullshit shit? Hold up. I was curious. I googled. Her? No, Henri Antoine Jules Bois. Tell me more. He has a fantastic name. It's the, one of the great minds, along with Freud and Jung. Yeah, I know. And I went to see because he was a French doctor or whatever they said. And a lot of French doctors at this time were figuring out neurology. Was he? He was. He wrote Satanism and Magic. Oh, God. <laughs> he was a noted friend of McGregor Mathers, the founder of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Oh, God. And he invented a flying bicycle. Did he? You can obviously see how well that worked. Okay. So that's fun. Let's continue. And this is from a chapter uh, called Who Shall Decide? And the quote being referenced is when doctors can agree, who shall decide? So it's about the, the things unknown even to medical men. And so she's referring to this great legacy of prophetic dreams. And she says that the Chaldeans are where the masters of dream interpretation. The Egyptians and Assyrians learned onariomancy from this people, who in common with the Hebrews held dreams as sacred messages from the gods. Remarkable dreams were recorded side by side with important historical events. Upon the same authority, we learn that it was custom to investigate the dreams of ill persons and diagnose the disease accordingly. Perfection attained by the Chaldean sages in interpreting dreams and omens has outlived the nation, and the term Chaldean being synonymous with a potentate, wise man, and prophet has become the pseudonym of a race of nomads, earning a nefarious living through fortune-telling. So she's saying they were once wise and respected, and now they have fallen to this level of disrepute. (sighs) 
And on this notion, we should probably discuss the improbability of wise peasants and how that proves the psychic phenomena is occurring within the mind. She points out, the wisdom of untutored mystics, the knowledge of ignorant peasants, and childhood dreams that so often come true, and even the unerring instinct of dumb animals defy alike the classifications of physical science and definitions accepted by psychology. This mysterious, undefined faculty, partaking as it does of the superterrestrial knowledge that has been classified by Bishop Brent and by the occultist as the sixth sense... <gasps> Though essentially different from the five senses, it partakes of all of them. It is the foundation for the human conscience and the basis of instinct, clairaudience, clairvoyance, and other supernormal qualities. It is the mysticism of the mystic, the essential of higher dreaming. It's all related to our psychic abilities. Right. That's yes. what dreams are. Because how else could peasants be smart? No way. Impossible. And then she points out, like, the priest of the Aztecs and the Incas, the Magi of Egypt and Assyria, the oracles of Greece, the Vestals of Rome, and the Druids of Northern Europe deliberately acquired and cultivated the sixth sense through isolation, meditation, and avoidance of secular cares. Every tribe of so-called barbarians of the present day has its medicine man or high priest who lives apart from the people and gives counsel and guidance when they stand in need, setting thereby an example that civilization might wisely follow. Oh, so all of these people are really just partaking in the same kind of knowledge that the ancient mystics did. Mm -hmm. Clearly. Let's play a fun game. Okay. Let's interpret some dreams. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to be your oracle. I have been dreaming... Of a white Christmas. Of a partridge and a pear tree. Close. Oh my God, did you see how close it was? That was close. <gasps> did you dream that? No, I'm just psychic and I knew what you were going to say. So we have partridges and pears. What could those mean? Partridge does not seem virtuous. Why? <laughs> it has big breast. Oh my. <laughs> see what you were dreaming about last night. And a pear, a pear seems ashamed of itself. I've never heard a woman happily declare that she's pear-shaped. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I'm going to say... It means shame. Someone that does not have a clear conscience. Or Jesus. I know that's what it means in the song, but whatever. So according to the book, Partridge is, to a man, this dream connotes dealings with malicious and conscienceless women. Okay, I'm sorry. I nailed it. What about pears? It's the symbol of foolishness. Pears, 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 pears. I told you they did not seem virtuous. A dream denoting sickness, it was also held as an emblem of the human heart. I told you a pear seemed ashamed of itself. <laughs> but then, after that, I dreamed of a porpoise. Well, you know what Freud would say. A porpoise? Mm-hmm. What's that? It's a dick. I thought you were going to say it was my mother. <laughs> he has two settings, dear. Anything remotely phallic-shaped is a dick, and so that's what it is. But I think if you dream of a porpoise, you're afraid of drowning. You're feeling overwhelmed. The dream of joy and happiness. Bullshit. All right, try again. I also dreamed that this porpoise was swimming with fish. What kind of fish? Fish. Generic fish. Generic fish. Fidelity. They were this fish. They were, lo <laughs> they were, they mean loyalty. Much pleasure and comparative independence. It can also denote gastric disturbance. It was originally an emblem of sex and of fecundity, but it was adopted by Christians as a symbol of Christ and the church. Loyalty. Like I said. <laughs> Sure. And then, after the fish, I was riding the porpoise. <laughs> Told you it was a dick. <laughs> so. <laughs> 
Um, well, uh, writing can indicate that you free, um, that you have, you feel adventurous, that you're going to strike out on your own and, you know, make things happen. Maybe if you're riding the porpoise, you could go to Atlantis. Think some of my brethren are there. So it could mean a dream of good fortune or, according to Freud or Young, an erotic dream. It does denote that legend and tradition generally justify the good fortune interpretation. As I'm riding the porpoise on my way to Atlantis. Mm-hmm. Are you going to go see Jason Mama? If you ask Freud, I might be. Okay. Because I pull out my saber. Yeah, well, um, sabers can mean uh, betrayal often. So it says the gypsy interpretation. Okay. Is a dream of triumph over enemies. Mm-hmm. Freud says an erotic dream. Ugh, Freud. And then I do see Jason Moma, and he is giving me the biggest smiling grin. But then I notice that my teeth are falling out when I try to smile back. Okay, you know this is like the only recurring dream I've ever had in my life. You weren't supposed to tell people that I was telling them your dream. My dream never has a porpoise. Bullshit. Never. Then why are you making that noise while you're sleeping? (laughs) Uh, So your teeth are falling out. That can mean, oh, well, unfortunately, it means that your loved ones will all leave you. That's what a gypsy would tell you. Oh, God. But you know what Freud would say about your reoccurring dream? What would Freud say? Masturbation. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, so she has strong feelings about Freud. I feel I should tell you. So she, she writes. Th- those are all from her dictionary of dream symbols. Wonderful. Included at in the back of the book. There's also one where it has like astrological bodies that correspond to different ways that you should interpret your dream. It's very in-depth. But she does speak about Freud. She says, Dr. Freud, who is said to have studied under Dr. Charcot, has ignited controversies innumerable with his theories of the dream. Although his fundamental hypothesis of sexual origin of every dream has raised storms of anger and ridicule, it has created a cult of Freudians who accept their leader's view unreservedly, who are intolerantly eager to thrust them upon others. Uh. See there, I like that. The Freudian dream interpretations are invariably elaborate and frequently revolting. Yet, their originator has done psychology a service in changing scientific opinion, which formally held that all dreams were senseless shibboleths. That's a new word. Yep. Into accepting them as logical, mental, or psychic processes, capable of analysis and interpretation. Dr. Carl Jung of Zurich, formerly a follower of Freud's, has founded a rival cult, a trifle less revolting. Oh, good. And that it rejects the unvarying sexual origin of the dream. Doctors Frink, Brill, and Coriat, and Leonard Hirschberg are exponents of Freud's theories, although they may differ on minor points. While the Freudian methods of dream analysis have been accepted and put into practice, the highest authorities upon the subject deny many of Freud's theories. Kronfeld, a contemporary, said that besides Freud's conception of the vorconscious, Henroth's demonomania becomes a modest scientific theory. Boris Sittis observes that Freudian writings are full of unconscious sexual humor. Yeah, I don't think he was hiding that. To which I say unconscious? (laughs) Really? I guess Freud says they're unconscious. No. He says sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. That means most of the time it's not. Yes, but it's so much more fun to talk about the crazy-ass things he would come up with. I have strong feelings about Dr. Freud. You know this. I think our listeners have heard us speak of him once or twice. <laughs> it's been a while, though. It has. It's we haven't trotted good old Freud out in quite some time. Freud young time. Freud young time. 
needs a sun theme song. So Freud wrote a lot about dreams. I mean, he even wrote a book. The Interpretation of Dreams. Exactly. And when I took my favorite class in college, we'd been reading great pieces of philosophy throughout the class and watching movies. So it was called Sex and Violence in Cinema. And my professor was the smartest man I've ever met. No offense, honey. None taken. Okay. We had to write a paper, of course, at the end of it because it was an English class. And I wrote mine on Dreamwork and Apocalypse Now and other Vietnam era films. <laughs> so I really enjoyed Freud's dream work. You're such a basic bitch. I know. So Freud says, what is meant by dream stimuli and dream sources may be explained by a reference to the popular saying, dreams come from the stomach. This notion covers a theory which conceives the dream as resulting from a disturbance of sleep. We should not have dreamed if some disturbing element had not come into play during our sleep. And the dream is the reaction against the disturbance. But he's thinking the disturbance is not that little piece of potato. No, of course not. Things you need to know. Elements of dream work. Condensation. What is condensation? A do is the no, condensation. No, not Condensation on side of a glass. No, that is not... You're being so literal. Are you British? Scientist. <laughs> okay. Condensation is one channel by which repressed ideas and feelings can manifest in dreams. So this is our potato of the mind. Got it? According to Freud, every situation in a dream seems to be put together out of two or more impressions or experiences. One only need to think about how people and places tend to meld into composite figures in our dreams. The same sort of condensation can occur in symptom formation. Other method whereby the repressed hides itself is displacement. So what does he mean by symptoms? Like physical symptoms? No, more, I mean, I guess it could be. It could be that you needed to pee and your foot hurt. But it, I think what he's referring to is more uh, multiple neuroses or anxieties, just kind of disturbing thoughts, causes of unease Okay. on a mental level. So now that we know what condensation is and that, we have to fix whatever is wrong with us. We need to understand some basics of how he says dreams actually function. This is key. Wish fulfillment. Your dream was wish fulfillment. I didn't dream about a porpoise. Yes, you did. <laughs> so wishes arise when wanting is prohibited. What does that mean? We want things all the time. Most of the time we can take care of it ourselves. But there are things we can't. Right. And when you're sleeping, those things can be physical like, you can't get up and get a glass of water unless you want to disturb your sleep, which is cold. not good. Yes. And that's a very basic idea that you can readily see. Like, if you are cold, you dream about being... On the beach. On the beach. And you you're warm. you solve the problem. You've solved this problem. But if your wish is more of a neurotic nature and you're worried about the universe expanding, you might dream that you're God and you can stop that happening and then make a movie about it. Or this man may appear. He does not go here. And tell you how to help. <laughs> so wishes, by their very definition, are desires which we cannot act upon. We are prohibited from just knocking that out before we go to bed. Now, the Freud Museum says that the contentious issue is that Freud insists that all dreams are fulfillments of wishes. He argues against the idea that dreams may be primarily concerned with the solution of an intellectual problem. For instance, when representing a worry or an intention, or some other mental product. Even when Freud allows the possibility of anxiety dreams or punishment dreams, he still incorporates these within the category of wish. There is something fundamental for Freud about the wish. 
So you're not solving an intellectual problem as in if you're working on some sort of alchemical problem or something, like some kind of math problem or science problem, like that's not coming to you in your dream. Well, you might, but if you solve it in your sleep, you're Mm -hmm. fulfilling your wish for success. Ah, and approval. So that's the and, wish you're fulfilling. Yes. So your wish is not actually to solve the problem. Your wish is to solve your mother. I mean, your your hmm? approval. You hmm. want approval. From the mother. Most likely. You know, round up the usual suspects. Now, one of the interesting things that Freud is all about is the layers. Mm-hmm. Layers and layers. And Dreams, then, they are like onions. Everything's like an onion or an iceberg. <laughs> there are two components of dream content, according to Freud, or two levels of structure there's the manifest content so it's what you see it's the superficial layer that is your actual reporting that's what you would tell someone if you're going to tell them about your dream it's your it's your porpoise the porpoise the porpoise the teeth the teeth no stick with porpoise. my saber stop it we're sticking with porpoise because i'm about to make a joke porpoise and the latent content is the purpose Ah. Of the porpoise. The purpose of the porpoise. Yes. The latent content is the underlying dream thought or the motive, the cause, which is hidden and secret and must be drawn out through analysis. You know, you could help you with that analysis. The sign-up sheet is over here. Thank you. We take credit card and PayPal (laughs) and Bitcoin. No rikes marks. No, no. So the ways in which underlying desires and anxieties are dealt with in dreams referred to as dream work, transforms the latent content into symbols or a narrative that will reduce tension and allow the mind to deal with troubling topics while the body remains at rest. So we are forming a story that we can work within. And we're amalgamating all these different ideas Mm -hmm. and all these different worries and anxieties into the porpoise. The porpoise. The porpoise is a metaphor, Jacob. So the Freud Museum in London again says, in a sense, the word itself says it all. A number of dream elements, themes, images, figures, ideas are combined into one so that the dream becomes more compact or condensed into the dream thoughts. And so easier to work out Mm -hmm. and easier to fulfill. Your wish. The wish. Your wish. So if you dream about camp. I'm camping. You're camp. You know, you're at a sleepaway camp i'm at camp you might populate this dream Mm -hmm. with three other people okay and they might be condensations amalgamations Mm -hmm. of everyone you knew from camp okay all the cute girls who said no to dancing with you at the end of the two week session all of them all the girls no literally all of them all the girls (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. and uh you're the people who picked on you would all be one person one bully. One bully. And your buddy, like your your camp friend might be one person. And then you might actually have your real counselor or whatever. But you, you're not going to have 60 kids. And if you do, they basically don't have faces. You have oh, like, that's creepy. Right? Don't say okay, that. Okay, now, now I'm thinking um, about it. I think I've seen that horror movie. <laughs> I think it was an episode of Doctor Who and I didn't like it. Anyway, and you don't have to have necessarily had personal experience with all these people. They wouldn't have to be from camp. You might, instead of having cute girl character be like some kind of artist palette gone awry of all the people you'd ever known she might just look like a character from boy meets world generic character kind of topanga ish yeah okay 
but you would recognize her as somebody you knew from you. Right. Be like, that's that girl. And then maybe when you woke up and you thought about it, you're like, that person looked a lot like Topanga. Or when you woke up and thought about it, you'd be like, have you seen this girl? I should make flyers. You're right. So you might even have like a kind of chimera character who is pieces of different people. And that could be like several people you've had a bad experience with. And it would combine your vice principal's terrifying mustache that intimidated you from afar and your uncle's three button rule shirt and your greasy neighbor's bad haircut or whatever or that one embarrassing cousin's bad skin or whatever it is a frightening chimera yeah but you'd kind of create that person to stand in for just the way you felt about all of them just that kind of like you make me uncomfortable so this makes me think of other types of condensation or amalgamations you can have like with Freudian slips Mm -hmm. when you say one thing about me and your mother exactly exactly did we ever tell your audience the audience that I bought you Freudian slippers I don't know but they probably are happy to know that they're slippers that look like Sigmund Freud they are and the kids love to wear them and I think it says a lot that their mother gave them those slippers they wear (gasps) no Now, Freud did believe that dream interpretation is a vital piece of analysis or getting analyzed. So if you want to be a Freudian psychiatrist or psychologist today, you have to go through two years of analysis. And that includes dream analysis. I have a friend that's a Freudian psychiatrist. (laughs) I just want to sit in. Now, he does recognize that suggestion does play a major role in shaping dreams. Suggestion is, you know, outside stimuli. That we take in that have nothing to do with our wish stuff. Not a true dream, in other words, as Uh, earlier discussed. So the fact that manifest content of a dream can be influenced by suggestion is obvious. Also portions of a latent dream thought or those thoughts that were pre-conscious. There are also corroborative dreams, which seem to have been produced in compliance with the words of the physician instead of having been brought to light by the dreamer's unconscious. This ambiguous position cannot be escaped in the analysis, since with these patients, unless one interprets, constructs, and propounds, one never obtains access to what is repressed in them. If memories are evoked, it is more than likely the interpretation was correct. But here, a skeptic might say such recollections are illusory, and the subjective feeling of conviction is often absent. I would say they were illusory, as we talked about last week. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... To conclude our Freud section, what we are dealing with may not be the reproduction of a real and forgotten event, but bringing forward an unconscious fantasy about which no feeling of memory is ever to be expected, though the possibility may sometimes remain of a sense of subjective conviction. So he's saying you can dream about things that don't mean shit to you, man. Cigar's a cigar. You can dream about this man all you want, and you may feel like you had some intense connection with him. It may be nothing. It may just be that somebody told you you're supposed to dream about him. Or it may be a chimeric amalgamation. Or it might just be like potato. Might be potato. Now, they also mention on the site Young are less perverse and disgusting. <laughs> cult leader. Freudian cult leader. My favorite is like he started his own cult when he and Freud had a fight. And we've talked about archetypes some on previous episodes. We could do a like 17 part series on this like we could do hero's journey for probably 52 weeks but we're not yeah so i hate to give miss parenthetical taylor any credit on freud because she hates him hates him but 
She is kind of right. Freud and Jung kind of did diverge yes. over stuff with dreams, actually. They were friends later in life. No, they worked it out. They got back together. You know, they probably did. They little, little dream work. Well, <laughs> no, they probably like astral projected into each other's dreams and worked shit out. Probably so. Like you do when you're a dream surfer. Where's my comic? <gasps> oh my God, it's just Freud. It's just Freud. <gasps> <gasps> I've solved the problem. He, Freud could like that, look like that if he was balding. <laughs> shaved his beard. Shaved. We don't know. We'll never know. So what are the differences between Jung and Freud when it comes to dreams? Jung is less perverse. I see you've been reading your <laughs> book, The Assigned Text. I was paying attention. I'm so glad. Well, yes, and Freud believed that dreams were very secretive things that had to be drawn out and poked at and like beaten with a hammer by an analyst in order to make any sense of them. And this was the work of said analyst. Like, this is what you have to do to make people better. Young believed that dreams were obvious. Duh. <laughs> Young said, they do not deceive. They do not lie. They do not distort or disguise. They are invariably seeking to express something that the ego does not know and does not understand. So Freud thought dreams were just like mind, self soothing mechanisms mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they helped us stay asleep and young thought they helped us wake up to the universe man collective unconsciousness so what kind of drugs do you think young was on? <laughs> the good shit okay so young believed that dreams were integrating our conscious and unconscious lives he called this process individuation now we have covered that in our doppelgangers episode the easiest way to think of that recap is the mind's quest for wholeness are the quality of applied wisdom that separates elders from grumpy old men. While not required, working with dreams and amplifying the mythic components, not mystic, can hasten along the process. So he was all about this universal kind of mythos, this mm -hmm. proto-mythos that we all share because he saw all of the connections between the different mythologies around the world. And different iconography and cultures. Yeah. And he was very attuned to repeating symbols and repeating characters. And that's where we get archetypes. Young says, dreams are impartial, spontaneous products of the unconscious psyche outside the control of the will. They are pure nature. They show us unvarnished natural truth and are therefore fitted as nothing else to give us back an attitude that accords with our basic human nature when our consciousness has stayed too far from its foundation and run into an impasse. I don't care what he's selling. I'm buying it. <laughs> like, I just don't even care. I love this. I love, I love the way he writes. Or I love the way his translator writes. Or whatever is going on here. In the Doppelganger episode, we talked about the different parts of the self. According to Young. According to Young, our inner self. And to recap, the self is that center of the psyche, representing the unification of the conscious and unconscious selves. Now we have our shadow, our darker part of our psyche, that can be projected onto our external character, or can be healthily incorporated into our... Higher self. Higher self, yeah. And then we also talked about the persona, which is our social mask that opposes the shadow. It's what we project... From our inner selves for everyone to see. So our persona is like who we think we're supposed to be. And our shadow is like all the growing mass of things that we are telling ourselves we shouldn't be. Yes. And the way that we integrate them creates the relationship between them. 
And now one other element we didn't really talk about is the anima or the animus. And that depends on the gender of the dreamer. Right, your feminine or masculine side, whichever you do not express outwardly on a normal basis. He was a very progressive one, this young. So this hey, 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 hey. Do you know what uh, Carl Jung's anima is like? What's that? She's just a young slip of a girl. Oh. <laughs> That's terrible. I know. <laughs> I just had a brilliant idea. Hmm? You know what we should do? What's that? Is, you know, there's always all this kind of confusion about pronouns, like personal pronouns. We mm-hmm. should just adopt these. Anima and animus. And then you just kind of pick which one you are. Are you more masculine? More feminine? Yeah, but how would you how would you make it possessive? Animuses. Okay. <laughs> and they have superpowers anyway, so that's cool. I mean, they do. They definitely do. But, so explain that a little bit right, more. Right, all, all joking aside. So they are more the exotic god or superhero-like. And sometimes you can identify with the parent of the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. Very Freudian there. See where that's kind of coming from. Well, it's, it takes that place of your guide also and it, your connection can be so close that they express as a part of yourself and that's the thing about all the dream archetypes that we're talking about now these are all aspects of the self but you can have your external parts as well these external archetypes now these are less commonly expressed in dreams according to young and they generally only come when you're kind of facing a big life event but these are characters that aren't you Now, you can have a divine child, which is a symbol of the true self, but it can also represent vulnerability, rebirth, and transformation. There's also the wise old woman. Now, this image can represent the self after it no longer identifies with its anima or anima, so it can be an old man, too. Uh, And it represents wisdom, guidance, and power. may also be a representation of the collective unconscious, so some font of higher knowledge is usually expressed through an older character. Right, and he's using the archetypes are these symbols drawn from the great mythos of the world. There's also the great mother, and she can be a nurturer or a bitch. I'm sorry, a witch. When and she, get a little Freudian slip there. Or a carefully choreographed one. Uh-huh. You'll never know. So when she's a good witch, she's a very good witch. And she may literally look like a grandmother or mother figure. Uh, the witch usually brings destruction and death through domination and seduction. Okay. Okay. We got a very Madonna whore thing going, but whatever. And then there's also the trickster figure who who creates trouble and is kind of this wise fool. I mean, I think of him as being the fool in tarot. Right. You know, like he represents new beginnings. He's fortuitous. He's doing okay in spite of himself, kind of. And I mean, just knowing from you, the early tarot decks take a lot from Jungian archetypes, right? They do. And they go back into the mythology themselves in some places. It's really interesting. The development of the tarot deck is actually a very interesting thing. We should do an episode We on should it. do an episode on it. So this fool may or may not have superpowers. He's usually a catalyst to point out the flaws and destroy a system while he remains untouched. He causes us to question, and he may also trick us into doing the wrong thing. He may appear in a dream when we are uncertain about a decision we must make or when we are feeling vulnerable. So this is probably who this man would be. If he is a Jungian archetype. Yeah. But he's usually benevolent, and the fool is never nice on purpose, or never nice enough to be nice the whole time. Like, he always brings about a little chaos with him. Well, I think that you can maybe even say that about this man. Yeah. You know, it depends on the story, but it definitely can act as a catalyst, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of bring people ideas or push people in one direction, kind of giving advice. 
Is he the monolith? From 2001 A Space Odyssey? Just a thought. The alien technology that pushes apes forward into humanity and then humanity farther into... Godness. The star child? Yeah. Maybe. Okay. Kind of done with aliens. I'm kind of tired of that. I'd buy that he's an alien as much as I buy anything about this man. So, we've gone through a lot of the different ideas that were presented by the This Man website. Well, and we've kind of also tracked the history of dream interpretation right up to the precipice of modern psychology. Right. Or modern medicine? Yes, yes. Because now, onareology is that scientific study of dreams. They've co-opted the term. They have. And it's not about interpreting the dreams. It's just about studying the dreams. You scientists have no imagination. So, many years ago, not that many, they discovered, you know, REM sleep. I've heard of it. What is REM sleep? Rapid eye movement. That's why it's all in capital letters. Right. So, that is whenever you were sleeping and your muscles are paralyzed, mm-hmm. but you're, except for your eyes, mm-hmm. and they just kind of dart about. And it wasn't long before they figured out that is when you are dreaming. And they referred to non-REM sleep as a time of reduced brain activation or quiet sleep. Okay. In which there's no muscular inhibition, but there's also not a lot of movement. In your eyes. Anywhere. Anywhere. Okay. You have some. You can roll over. Things like that. I don't think our daughter's getting enough REM sleep. (laughs) Right. She sleeps like Elaine from Seinfeld dances. It is very much like that. So they found that about 75% of participants recalled dreams from REM sleep. Whereas only about 17% recall dreams from non-REM sleep. Okay, so you have to get into a deeper, like almost paralytic state before your mind starts to do dreamy stuff. Yeah, there is a very stepwise fashion into getting there. Okay. Your brain moves through different phases before it gets to REM sleep, where it produces different kind of brain waves that can be recorded on an EEG. So this is the phase of sleep where most people would experience sleep paralysis. So like we talked about sleep paralysis, right? You would be kind of woken up mid REM sleep or you would be partially woken up to Mm -hmm. where you would still have muscle paralysis, but your eyes might open. You might think they open and you might have this, you know, see something or feel something that's not there. Like an old hag. Or is it? Continue. Succubus. But yeah, there's a lot more about that on our sleep paralysis episode from way back in the day. Uh, It's some portion of the quote. (laughs) (laughs) Something Shakespeare. No, it's some I don't remember which part I picked, but it's, uh, you have merely slumbered here while these visions did appear, but I don't remember which part I used. (laughs) Something like that. (laughs) Maybe used all of it. But now you can have what's called sleep mentation. During your non-REM sleep. Mentation is not a word. It's more, yeah. It's more like this, you can have cognitive activity, but it's not those hallucinatory images that you see with dreams. It's kind of like the weird stuff you think about while you're falling asleep. Maybe so. Dream thoughts, like shower thoughts. Mm -hmm. TM. It's rapid eye movement, not random eye movement, right? right? (laughs) Because I've definitely heard know-it-alls say both as they mansplain something to me. But is it random? So right, a lot of times it is called random eye movement, but it actually means rapid eye movement. And some people think that it is not random at all. Who, d- who thinks that? Scientists. Scientists are crazy. That's true. So even in the 80s, they were doing studies showing that these rapid eye movements were not random and were actually matched up to the visual descriptions 
of dream imagery. For instance, you might have an eye movement that's up and to the left that's associated with your dream imagery with looking up and to the left. So, of course, the dreamers don't know what their eyes were doing, Mm -hmm. but they're woken up right after him sleep and they're asked immediately, what were you dreaming about? And they'll be like, this thing flew over my head. I was trying to see where it was going. Exactly. A UFO. Uh, no, it was a man on the surfboard. It was a man with bongos who said, all right, all right, all right. So they have had more recent studies supporting this, but there have also been other studies that say, nah. So it's still up researchers, in the air. Researchers are debating. They can't come to it's a exactly consensus about something mysterious. Okay. Now they have used fMRIs to study what parts of the brain are active during dreams. Now, of course, before that, they were just using EEGs. They could look at you know the brain wave activity. But using an fMRI, they you can, can pinpoint see which pin- part of yes. the brain is charging, firing. Firing, yes, active. And so they observed that you were using the same sensory motor cortical regions for both wakefulness and lucid dreaming. So if in your dream, you're dreaming of walking, then the part of your brain that normally is activated for walking is activated. Just a little weaker. That's really interesting. So it's not lit up to full brightness, though. No, it's not as active as normal. But the paralysis is not in your brain. It's kind of kind of like doesn't let it get to the spinal cord. It's the okay. easiest way to think about it. So it's not like if it was lit up all the way, you would be acting it out. Well, so some people that have REM sleep behavior disorder, where they don't have that full paralysis, will physically enact things <laughs> during their sleep. And you could think of people that sleepwalk. Oh. Okay. Like, uh, I think of Mike Birbiglia. Mm-hmm. Sleepwalk with me. Yeah, and he talks about, like, walking out of the window and stuff like that. That's funny, not funny. He's a comedian, and he told the story. It so it's it funny. funny, and I, I'm always horrified by it. I'm mostly afraid of it because I know your dad sleepwalked, sleptwalk. Yes. And so I'm always afraid our kids are going to do it. It is. It is inheritable. And so I sleep talk. So much. And our kids do. Yes. Maybe Odette has that. Huh, never thought of that. Oh, God. Okay, so we've covered, like, basic topography of dreaming. Like, kind of how it works in the brain-ish. Yeah, it kind of works like you're awake. Kind of works like you're awake. But for what purpose? I mean, I know what Freud says, but... I thought we explained that already. Okay. Well, does med- I bet you medicine's not going to let that dog have his day. I bet they have their own ideas. They do. They do. So there are a few theories so one is the activation synthesis hypothesis which states that dreams actually don't mean anything boring it's just random firings of the brain pull random thoughts and imagery from our memories and humans construct dream stories after they wake up and attempt to make sense of this i like i don't know what happened to some scientists in childhood where they're like we can't trust humans to do anything maybe they just want to ruin the fun i don't it's like it's more than a killjoy it's like these these peons who don't know science think that they dream things i've come across many scientists in my day where their like entire goal in life is to just disprove anything mysterious or in like general knowledge like what you're what everyone's doing they're the well actually scientists oh they are oh my god we had one (laughs) (laughs) there's another one That's interesting. That's the threat simulation theory. And so this suggests that dreaming could be seen as like this ancient biological defense mechanism where you are constantly kind of training to either fend off or run away from threats. Well, 
I would like to enter here some information about what a stranger in a dream can represent. Yeah. Um, now, according to our our dictionary of dream symbols, to dream of a stranger is to dream of honor and success. That makes no sense. No, it doesn't. But this kind of does. Like, even from a crazy standpoint, like, it's like, what? Why? How'd you get that? Where'd you get that from? I want to see your work. Where's your page with your work on it? So this comes from Psychology Today. And it's an article written by Patrick McNamara called Why Do We Dream of Strangers? And a typical REM dream contains between two or three characters in addition to the dreamer, usually in your own dream. So that lines up with what Freud said, actually. Oh, no, it does. He had some insight. But like my my thought with Freud is like, oh, shit, what if he's right about everything? <laughs> like, that's where I come to with him. I had a dream once that I was not a character in. I think people do that a lot. I don't, I've only had one. And it was so weird, I remember it. I was watching Beauty and the Beast in French. <laughs> it was just the movie, like, playing in my like head. Like La Belle La Bette or the cartoon? The cartoon. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> I know you love La Belle La Bette. Yeah, I do. So, very often, the other characters besides the dreamer will be complete strangers, like Beauty and the Beast. Just kidding. Like this man. Like that. So, according to the Hall Van de Castle norms concerning dream content, about 50% of characters in dreams are not familiar to... The dreamer. In some dream series, up to 80% are unknown to the dreamer. Now, the empirical study of dreams reveals that strangers are more often male than female. Okay, so that man. That man. And they're more often scary or threatening than pleasant and affable. Now, in an early study of over a thousand dreams conducted by Hall in 1963, the researcher found that strangers in dreams were most often male, that aggressive encounters were more likely to occur in interactions with unknown male than with an unknown female, or a familiar male or female, and that the unknown males appeared more frequently in dreams of males, male dreamer, than a female dreamer. So the stranger interacted greater than 60% of the cases with the dreamer in an aggressive manner. Okay, so this lines up with our threat simulation theory. Mm -hmm. We are preparing for an aggressive attack by... An aggressive male. Right. And in contrast, an unknown female is most of the time pretty pleasant or just kind of forgettable. Like the woman that checks you out at the grocery store or whatever. Just kind of like a minor character. I was going to say, I'm sure that there, I'm just like guessing that there's like a sexual component to a lot of dreams. That may be the pleasant. Yeah. Yeah. That may be what they mean by pleasant. Euphemism. Yeah. Domhoff found in 2003 that when male strangers appear in dreams, the likelihood that physical aggression will occur in that dream far exceeds what would be expected on the basis of chance. Male strangers appear to be a code or like a almost an archetype. No, definitely. Uh, for aggressive impulses that are being processed in memory. But he points out that dreams may be useful in facilitating emotional memory foundation, but we cannot form memories of people we've never met. We have to be performing some kind of almost subconscious play acting or creating a template. So that is a really good point. So most people, I would say it's fairly general knowledge that people know that dreams help incorporate memories. Mm -hmm. I think that's the most widely accepted, like, why do we dream so we can remember shit? Yeah, and so besides, like, so we can prophesize. So this idea was put forth by Rosalind Cartwright, Dr. Rosalind Cartwright, thinking that the brain incorporates memories, solves problems, and deals with emotions through dreams. So they have been able to look at MRI studies to look at that relation between dreaming and the role of deep brain structures. So these vivid, bizarre, and emotionally intense dreams are linked to part of the amygdala hippocampus. So the amygdala 
It is part of the brain that plays a primary role in the processing and memory of emotional reactions. In our little seahorse hippocampus is implicated in... Our porpoise? Seahorse. Fine. Important memory functions, such as the consolidation of information from short-term to long-term memory. So Christina Marzano at the University of Rome has been able to explain how humans remember their dreams by looking at signature patterns of brain waves. Now, of course, we already said people are more likely to remember their dreams when woken directly after REM sleep. So seeing this particular brain wave pattern, the frontal theta activity, while dreaming is also the same thing that we see when measuring brainwave activity when we are retrieving autobiographical memories while we're awake. So autobiographical means things that have personally happened yes, to you. Yes, your true memories. Okay, not things you've learned even. Yeah, so it looks like there's... Well, I mean, it can be. It can be. Okay. Yeah, it can be. So this suggests there is a neurophysiological mechanism... That stores your dream data. Yeah, we're employing while dreaming and recalling dreams. It's the same that we use when we are constructing and retrieving memories while we're awake. So unlike our phones, <laughs> we're running a program... Mm-hmm. while we're backing up our data to the cloud? That's exactly what our phones are doing. Well, you can't do it while your phone's active. It has to be plugged in. Oh, and- well, that's what you're doing. You're plugging it in. You're taking a nap. <laughs> that's what taking a nap is, plugging your phone in. Same thing. And so we already talked about how we know that the physical actions that are, that are taking place in a dream are actually activating those parts in your brain. Now, also, it's been shown that the visual cortex is used in dreams as well. So it's even running through your vision. Okay. And this was shown by having a patient who had a tiny little lesion. Okay. Either a tumor or something like that in her brain, in her visual cortex, just in that one little spot. And it caused her to not have dreams anymore. And otherwise she was a hundred percent fine. My gosh. So it just cut off that little pathway in the visual cortex that our brain uses while we're dreaming to interpret hallucinations, visions, what we're seeing in dreams. Question. What are blind people's dreams like? It's a great question. It depends on if they've seen before or not. And I guess where the damage is within the visual cortex. Exactly. So if they've seen before, they can still see things in their dreams. That is amazing. Yeah. But it's different for everybody. So is this just like rote memory retrieval kind of stuff or memory storage? Or is it also like, does any emotional processing happen as Freud would have us all believe? We think so. We think there okay. is an element to it. Shit, what if he's right about everything? Everything. So what we see and experience in our dreams might not be real. Like we talked about, that could be condensations, amalgamations. But the emotions attached to these experiences definitely are. So our dream stories within this theory is that their function is to kind of strip the emotion out of a certain experience by creating a memory of it. And this way you've dealt with that emotion. It's no longer active and you can kind of store that memory. So like you wash your clothes before you put them away. Like you don't want to put something up if it's sturdy. Well, because, I mean, because it can come back and affect the rest of your, your psyche. Right, like if you are going to get ready and you're like, oh, I meant to wash this. It's dirty. Oh, no, I can't wear it. So as this was eloquently said, dreams help regulate traffic on that fragile bridge which connects our experiences with our emotions and memories. I do love that line. Now, what if we don't get REM sleep? Well, I've heard it makes you a worse driver than if you're drunk, which I don't believe. And I've also heard that 
they tried it in Russia once and the participants in the experiment ate each other and saw God. You're talking about the Russian sleep experiment. I am a little now, yeah. That's a little creepypasta. I know. And a good one. It is a good one. It's one of my favorite ones. But really, would we eat each other and see God? Well, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Fun. Fun. So in the 60s. Yeah. They did a study. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where the participants were deprived of REM sleep. They did this rats. No. Oh, dogs. No. Monkeys. Nope. People. They did it to people. Of course. They did it to college sophomores. I'm sure. And maybe conscientious objectors. Probably. Okay. So they found that people that are deprived of REM sleep have increased tension, anxiety, irritability, difficulty concentrating, increase in appetite, weight gain, lack of motor coordination, feelings of emptiness and depersonalization, and hallucinatory tendencies. The hallucination thing is interesting. The rest of them like, yeah, they're cranky. I get that. I've had children. But the hallucinations is very interesting. It is. It is. So maybe we can see God. <laughs> I don't want to see God. I'm good. Um, but it also reduces our ability to deal with our emotions. It's very interesting. For one second, like it's like we have this impulse to hallucinate. We've talked about that before. You know, hallucinations are not always bad things. Right. But like we do it in our dreams and that's where it's supposed to happen. And if no. we take away our dreams, it just like breaks out into the real world. That is a terrifying thought and something that I think you could pitch Netflix right now. Oh, definitely. That's a great eight episode limited series. I know. <laughs> And, you know, there have been links between mental disorders and disordered REM sleep. Now, it's kind of a chicken and the egg situation, mm-hmm. which leads to which. I mean, in some, like, you know, schizophrenia and things like that, of course, it's the schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. But in things like depression, it's hard to say which came first, but there's often a disruption of adequate REM sleep. Maybe we're just hallucinating this man. So that's... Why we dream. We're building memories. Maybe we're protecting ourselves from threats on the savannah. Or maybe we're just dealing with emotions. But it still doesn't explain why we're dreaming this man. This creepy uncle-faced man. Okay, I have a theory. Does it have Slender Man? Does it involve Slender Man? No. I'm done with creepy pasta for the day, Lord. Okay, first thing I noticed when I saw this man was that it's a terrible sketch. Now, sure. I'm not critiquing the artistic quality or the ability of the person who made it, but for the purposes of recognizing the individual, it is very deficient for a number of reasons. Why is that? I mean, it is very kind of nondescript. There aren't a lot of details. Okay, that is first and foremost. Like his nose, for example, we don't have a clear contour of his nose. We also, because the way that the hairline's constructed, don't know what that looks like. It is a very gradual slope. You can't tell where it really begins and ends. We are not getting a very distinct contour of the face. Eyebrows are fuzzy. And I don't mean like they need to be trimmed. I mean like they're... They're that too. They're very Scorsese. A little bit. Maybe it's Martin Scorsese. The mouth line, we're not getting a full picture of the lips. But I think what's most difficult about his face is that there is such a level of ambiguity, such a lack of texture, and clear contour. And I don't mean like makeup, I mean like outlines. This guy can use some contour. Okay, the fair of that too. And then brows can't sew with us. But anyway, we can't understand the relationships that his features create on his face. 
So what do you mean by that? So we tend to perceive the human face as an entire cohesive unit. So not piece by piece. No. Like, for example, it's much harder for people to recognize a celebrity. For instance, if the bottom part of their face is changed out with someone else. Top half of their face still looks like them, but they have just kind of some average Joe's chin or whatever. We won't recognize this person that we would recognize instantly otherwise. Also, if you take a face and change one feature, people can still generally pick out the face they saw. We see more about the relationships than we do about those specific features. And this is proven out in the work of forensic sketch artists. So, but sketch artists are always like, what did his eye look like? What did his nose look like? Well, now the training typically bends a little bit because we've learned that focusing on one feature at a time isn't necessarily productive. Wait, I'm talking about the truth. I'm talking about law and order. Boom, boom. That is the truth. But that's not what they're doing as much nowadays. Right. And there are a lot more like composite kits that have been distributed to police offices where uh, digital renderings can be put together using like the witnesses selection of eyes, nose, mouth from, you know, an array. But that's been shown to create bad faces. What's drawn out in forensic sketching, which is the kind of sketching where you are drawing from someone's verbal description, from right. a witness's verbal description, you've not seen the person, you don't have any photograph or source material, is typically a feature that stands out as a regular, like their eyes were too far apart or yeah. their nose was too big or whatever. And the sketch artist can emphasize that strange feature in relationship to the other features. Mm-hmm. And that's what proves most effective. They're like caricatures almost. It's most of the successful ones are. There are, of course, exceptions. You have things like the Timothy McVeigh sketch. You know, a police officer pulled him over and, you know, for a traffic infraction and ended up holding on to him because he looked like the police sketch. Right. There are those exceptions where sketches are incredibly effective. Yes. But by and large, the identikits, which are the facial, facial composite <laughs> kits that are distributed to police offices and forensic sketches are hit and miss. Success rate of like 9% or something. It's ridiculous. So, you know, this being the century of progress of course technology technology we are working on that (laughs) you are no we're doing that no but i'm definitely following the blogs of the people who are because like in my little kid heart i still want to be a police sketch artist like when i grow up keep dreaming i know but they are pioneering new technology that instead of segmenting the face into features eyes nose mouth etc they present an array of people who fit the age sex shape, skin tone, description. And some some of them are divided by ethnicity and things like that. But they'll take like these basic characteristics and they'll show a witness an array of like 200 photos that come up like five at a time. And the witness will click on one of that kind of makes sense, right? And then they'll go to the next page and they might pick two from that or whatever. And they go through and they pick some faces. And then the program uses an algorithm to bring all those faces together and kind of average them. So what you're saying is they're creating an amalgamation. Yes, of all these existing faces. But that is way more effective because, you know, you have defined contours, you have texture on the skin, you can see a lip line, you can see where the eyes sit on the head. And those are all the things that I find to be ridiculously 
and I'm going to venture to say maybe purposefully obscured about this man. They also try to run sketches through facial recognition databases. Oh, interesting. How successful was that? Well, they're working on it. They're, ah, do- okay. they're doing a lot of things with like texture wraps and algorithms and like density scans and all kinds of things to try and bring the sketches into something the computer can recognize more easily as a face. Um, so they'll run it through like a, a planal relationship scan or whatever, and it'll, you know, build stuff up and Kind of build it three dimensionally. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they have pretty good success with it when there are clearly defined contours, right. when the head is the right size. Like a lot of the sketches don't give us a straight on angle or don't have a realistic proportion for the head in general, which I think would be a problem with this man. Like we can't figure out where the, like where to drop the face on the little cutout, you know, right, like right. there's just nothing there. So for him to be recognized is not surprising because he can look like anyone. You could basically take what you have in his sketch, superimpose it on top of 25% of the world's face, and come up with a reasonable likeness. Yeah. I see it. Yeah, I see it. Yeah. Because it's just not a good forensic sketch. And so we've talked about a lot of the different theories that are related to this man. I mean, that fits that dream imitation that we've kind of seen it. We're exposed to this phenomenon. We're so deeply impressed that we start seeing this man in their dreams. And I truly believe people are seeing this man in their dreams. Oh, yeah, me too. After they read this article or maybe watch listen to this episode. Or walk by the post, exactly. you know, the sign on the post. Exactly. We've talked about possible mythical or religious causes. Yep, we did. Maybe if we had a dream catcher or a Baku, we wouldn't be dreaming of this. Maybe if we ate all the nutmeg, we would. It's all those pumpkin spice lattes. Maybe he was some kind of derivation of the archetypes, the Jungian archetypes, Mm -hmm. or a dream surfer. Everybody go surfing, surfing in your dreams. Exactly. All right, all right, all right. All right. They even mentioned daytime recognition, that this man could be an instrument which in the subject's waking life facilitates recognition of an undefined numerical image. I'm on board with that one. All right, well. All right, well, that sews, th- sews it up. I've chosen my theory. Which one? The last one. The, what? like, we, s- we saw the poster, and now we think we saw him. The waking recognition. You think that's it? Yeah, I'm on I've, board. I have one more theory. That's not fair. You can't add to the multiple choice test after I've turned in my Scantron. So let's talk about a man. <laughs> This man. This man. Or a different man. His name. This man doesn't have a name. This man does. Okay. That man? His name is Andrea Nutella. He's delicious. He's Italian. Okay. He's made of hazelnuts. I know. And nutmeg. And nutmeg. And Mexican <laughs> tarragon. Now, he is quite a subversive. Is he a deplorable? He runs a fake advertising agency <laughs> called Guerrilla Marketing. Which designs subversive hoaxes and creates weird art projects exploring pornography, politics, and advertising. All the good things. He defines guerrilla marketing as a set of non-conventional communication techniques that achieves maximum visibility with minimum investment. Does he work for the Kremlin? He works for himself. (laughs) He states on his site that the mimetic virus can replicate itself. In the minds of consumers. Shit, did he coin meme? No, meme's an old term. You know that. Fine. If you won't give me that, did he invent this man? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so he created this man. Now he likes doing all these different kind of hoaxes. Is it a hoax? 
jokes if people are really dreaming about him, though? That's a great question. He has a lot of thoughts on these kind of, he's kind of, you know, hoax is not the only thing that he's doing. You know, it's a hoax, but it's also trying to get kind of a message out and trying to kind of subvert things. Jesus Christ, he's avant-garde as fuck. No, he is. And one of my favorite things he's done recently is in 2016, he started a petition on change.org addressed to God or whomever it may concern. (laughs) Okay. It had 11,753 signers. Cool. And they all wanted to say no to David Bowie being dead. I may have signed that. I I signed it in my heart. I'm sure you did. I was like, I can be a hero just for one day. I'm going to sign this petition and change the world, motherfuckers. So on it, on the petition, it explained, it's a test to check whether God is really there. If David Bowie does not come back, we are left with just two non-mutually exclusive possibilities. Either God does not exist, online petitions don't work, or both. I have a third possibility that he did not consider. What's that? David Bowie is God. Of course, everyone knows that. Bowie is God. Trick question. See what I did there? I amended the Scantron document. (laughs) So he said about this that social networks are crowded with people crying for Bowie's death. But in these people's real lives, he's just a character or fiction. Yeah, clearly he did not sit in on that project I worked on for over a year. (laughs) But in that, he was a mythical figure. He felt like he was there. Like you're talking about Will Brooker. Yeah. So my friend did a year of his life where he lived through David Bowie's experiences and basically tried to method act his way into a biography. And it got a lot of national press and stuff. Like he was in Rolling Stone and some illustrations I did were in the Washington Post. And I was the happiest kid in the world. This is all before Bowie dies. Bowie died like, Right as he was wrapping up this project. And And it (laughs) devastated me. Because I'd been doing his website and his illustrations and everything for the book for over a year. My whole life had been David Bowie. My whole professional life. And it it was like a death in the family. It was weird. Now, you know who else did a year in the life of and wrote a book? Who? I don't remember his name. (laughs) Where he did a year in the life of Jesus. I didn't know that happened. Of course. People do things like that a lot. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not illustrating it. <laughs> exactly. But it is, it is putting him up as a mythical figure. But mm. what he was really pointing out was this kind of collectivist attitude that we have. And you see it so much where it's, oh, well, if I click like on this, then the government won't build that pipeline. Or the wall. Slacktivism. He's critiquing slacktivism. Yeah. Exactly. And also, I think probably critiquing the way we talk about definite reality, where it's like, this is something that you must accept. People are like, I refuse to accept it. Oh, I agree. Oh, yes. Yeah, I don't believe in that. Mm-hmm. I know it's not about belief. <laughs> it's about truth. You're and entitled so, to your mm-hmm. own opinion, but not your own facts. Exactly. So he is very into these subversive activities. So he said... About the true subversive dimension of the hoax. Any hoax produced in a social setting is part of the relationship of trust that's the basis of interpersonal relationships. In the same way that money finds its effective use thanks to the mutual recognition that is established around its value, reality is also and always the fruit of a social construction. We're getting a little heavy on the end of this episode. Oh, God. So he's saying if satire is questioning of the real, 
that remains within the universe of representation. The hoax does not allow itself to be locked within a discursive order, but on the contrary, it will put it to the challenge to regain its own legitimacy. You know what just happened? What's that? Derrida just started a slow clap. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so let me finish with his quote and then we'll break it down. So the hoax is a challenge to the pragmatic world of communication and the fact that every communication exchange always hides a power relationship. This is so Derrida. The language of words or symbols is not able to fully describe. Oh, and Nietzsche, and Nietzsche. (laughs) So let's break this modern mimetic prankster philosopher. Down. Let's break this down. So first thing's a relationship of trust. Are all we all agree on the nature of our world? And within our interpersonal relationships, we've agreed on a dynamic that we mm-hmm. say is appropriate for whatever setting we're in. And that's your social construct. Yes, it is. And it varies from person to person. Um, I remember in a book I was reading, it was darker subject matter, but they were referring to how A crime can't be committed unless both parties agree that a crime has been committed. If you murder someone and no one has a problem with it, then is it a murder? Well, yeah, I wouldn't take it that far. We're going to do an episode on that town in Missouri or whatever it is one day. That's an episode. Like she says, like, if you go into a stranger's house and take a pair of diamond earrings, you have burgled them. Yes. If you borrow your mom's diamond earrings without asking, she may be pissed. But she's not going to press charges. And that is within the confines of your relationship. Uh, another thing is like if you steal a car, that's not nice. Not nice. That's a crime. If you, again, take your mom's car without asking and go to the store and buy groceries and come back, she's not going to press charges. It is not right. the same thing. You've taken a vehicle that's not your own in both cases. Mm-hmm. But because of the social contract that you have with your mother, where it's a trust relationship, trust dynamic, you're not going to jail today. Right. And we have these dynamics just with strangers. Bubble space. Like there's personal space that we expect. Yes. Uh, when you go to go to northern cities, they don't expect you to say hi and look at you weird if you do. But in the south, if you don't, that's a problem. Yeah. That person is odd. Uh, and and you, you will get, mm, I don't know about him. I don't know about him. And no new Yankee. Carpet bag and son of a bitch. <laughs> and then of course we talked about like in family dynamics is very different. And then you also have your dynamic with the just entire external world, with the government, different corporations that kind of run our life. You know, you expect that there's a social contract with Facebook. I was about to say, like one <laughs> example that clearly comes to mind in this, you can really see it, is people are beginning to question Question this contract that they literally agreed to literally (laughs) with facebook because it they have recently been outed as being kind of unethical arbiters on our behalf Mm -hmm. and so people are like maybe i shouldn't agree to this anymore yeah yeah and you see this conversation happening kind of on a national scale where we're trying to reconstruct this relationship and assess the power dynamic and whether we've given too much Exactly. So with these hoaxes, you are trying to break down those social constructs and contracts that are established. Right. And that can go even to the edge of language and perception, which is a very radical thing that he's saying. Should you choose to go read Nietzsche, bring your tissues. (laughs) Think about it. (laughs) Wear some color the next day. Don't go into a black sweater phase right after you read Nietzsche. But Nietzsche talks a lot about the sign and the signified and, you know, the word leaf is not a leaf. 
It is a thing we agree means we leave. We agree it means leave, right. And it has no literal bearing on what that tree over there is doing. We only perceive that it has a connection. And it's very trippy shit, but it's really well, great that's, reading. That's actually always how I think about it, is you'll hear this. Oh my God, I've heard so many potheads be like, what if the red you see is not the red I see? Whoa. But it's exactly what you just said. We agree that this portion of the spectrum of light is red so it's always red Mm -hmm. now there's more you can go into that but that kind of just is what i think of no but like it is not the red you see it's maroon and it does not go with those pants now go get a job you got people with four types of cones and all that but they're not going to scientists philosophy i'm a tetrachromate i don't know if i am or not but i think i might be so he's taking this to the extreme he's saying like we can get to the bounds of symbols and social significance, cultural relationships, communication, all of it. He is not just like fuck the government. He is like, what if the red you see is not the red I see? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So he comes from a different man. Let's say I was going to say a different planet called Luther Blissett. Who so is Luther Blissett? Luther Blissett is also nondescript, yuppie-looking face. So there is this image of Luther Blissett. One image. And he is a multi-use name. Okay. He has an open reputation, informally adopted and shared by hundreds of artists and social activists all over Europe from 1994 to about 2000. So this is this is Kilroy. In this, a way. And this is like the, uh, the pseudonym directors use when they don't like a movie they've made. Yes, yes. So they were seeking to create a folk hero for the digital age. Oh, hell yeah. So who made him? Well, the creation was credited to Coleman Healy, Monty Canson, and Karen Elliott. Cool. Who are they? Well, those were multi-use names. No! Used by different <laughs> artists throughout the 70s Russian and 80s. nesting dolls of pseudonyms. So the actual pseudonym derives from the name of a British soccer player, footballer. What? <laughs> who was, quote, bought. For a record fee by the prestigious Italian club, AC Milan, in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And he bombed. Oh, so he's the Jamarcus Russell of Italian yeah. football. Okay, got it. But he became this symbol of heroic failure in Italy. They would. And he was, of course, used for, like, you know, super racist jokes and all that. He was black. Oh. So, of course, they went to subvert that idea and use that name for their new folk hero of the digital age and so they made him a yuppie-ish looking dude and so of course this started in italy it was adopted by three art activist collectives of rome bologna and viterbo and by a number of other individuals throughout europe in that late 90s period so italy is surprisingly often ranked as the unhappiest Western country. It's very unstable. It is. There's been a lot of tumult in Italy, um, many different governments coming and going, and the corruption stays. You know what they need? A leader that can get the trains on time. But if the trains were on time. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke guys. about it's a Mussolini joke. joke. Uh, so their trains were not on time, and they were also not really afforded any political stability, and they have gone through scads. Of different governments. Now, if you can be sad, if you can be the saddest Western nation when you have all the art and you have all the fashion and you have all the food and wine, (laughs) if you can be sad when you have all that, 
Your surroundings are very shitty. This is highbrow stuff, guys. So they went to wage a guerrilla war on the cultural industry. So they ran these unorthodox campaigns for victims of censorship, repression, and most of all, and what they're most famous for, they played elaborate media pranks. Okay, so another thing you need to know about Italy at this time is that they were like on the world watch list for censorship and unfairness to journalists. Like there was a lot of propaganda going on in Italy, a lot of governmental narrative uh, that would replace pretty much anything. They were actually jailing journalists and things like that. So things were not going well for journalists in Italy. And the media that did exist was not exactly trusted. So in 1995, Harry Kipper, a British conceptual artist, had a plan. He was going to tour Europe on a mountain bike with the purpose of linking several cities through an imaginary line that would eventually trace the word art on Europe's map. That sounds downright wholesome. But he disappeared. To where? Oh, I know. Secret sect of Illuminati monks. Maybe. This would be the Italian official narrative at the time. Problem. Like, they really did, like, conjure all these fantastical scenarios. And you can still see this in cases like Amanda Knox and the Monster of Florence trials. Oh, right. So, TV crews for one of their shows, Chi La Vista, which is kind of like a... a unsolved mysteries <gasps> it would do like missing persons <gasps> and they were placed in touch with a radio journalist who had heard all about mr harry kipper and the radio journalist got them in touch with Stuart home and richard essex who took this italian film crew on a tour of kipper's home in london so they were like flatmates or something they knew him they were friends okay. and, and they told him all about his life and all about his projects and the thing is Even though they filmed the entire sequence about this guy, last minute they smelled something fishy Mm -hmm. and they decided not to air the report. Well, did they smell something fishy because he was sleeping with the fishes? They smelled something fishy because the Luther Blissett project had completely invented the entire story. (gasps) Il pescatore! That means fish. Good job. So that's kind of what got them on the map. They released a press release about it and now they were on everyone's radar. Now, they also developed this radio program in Bologna, and it was about psychogeography. I know what geomancy is. I don't know what psychogeography is. I assume they're dowsing rods. So it is a really new age thing, kind of urban ley lines, getting the feel of places, the psychic energy of things. Mm. But this was the Luther Blissett group doing it. Mm Mm-hmm. So during the real radio show, they would have people out on the streets doing psychogeography. And they would report on particular locations in the city and the countryside. They would even have people call in to the studio to direct their field agents. Oh my god. Evidently, many of the field operatives were quite eloquent when describing their feelings in relation to the land or physical space. But every single member of this group, the Institute for Psychogeography... Guess what their name was? Luther Blissett. Of course. I'm on to it now. So it was very interactive. You could call them. You could even join them because they would say where they were. Mm. You can go out on the streets with the psychogeography group. They would have guerrilla theater interventions, street parties, three-sided football matches, 
and, of course, psychic attacks against public buildings and institutions. Now, this really came to a head whenever, on June 15th of 1995, several Blissettes boarded the 30-night tram at different spots, carrying confetti, drinks, and, quote, ghetto blasters. No! (laughs) Blaring Radio Blissette. The party kept growing wilder and wilder as people kept getting on the night tram. And eventually, the police had to block the tram and stop it. They were requested to disembark, but the psychogeographers declined to identify themselves, saying that, of course, they were... Luther Blissett. I told you, I'm onto it. So, a cop fired shots into the air. Shit! And the riot and shootout were broadcast live via mobile phone. And four of the Luther Blissettes were charged with dis- disorderly conduct and participation in a seditious rally. See, sedition still exists. That's what I'm saying. And those two events in 95 really put them on the map because the media picked up the story. Now, in January of 1996, they began spray painting a series of cryptic satanic messages and swastikas on Viterbo city walls. Now, of course, the local press began investigating. Oh, I'm sure they did. Now, they continued to escalate their disinformation plan by feeding the newspapers with a series of letters insinuating a connection between members of the right-wing city government oh my God. and inexistent exoteric neo-Nazi groups. This is how Pizzagate happens. I'm just saying. I'm not loving this one. On a Saturday night in May, knowing that the woods surrounding the city were to be cleaned, The following day, by an environmentalist association, Blissett fabricated evidence of a black mass. And of course, all of the news stations covered this horrific discovery. Oh, I'm sure they did. Now, they also founded an ultra-Catholic group, the Committee for the Safeguard of Morals, Mm. a fanatic squad of vigilantes who claimed to have begun their own nocturnal patrols to hunt down the Satanist. (laughs) And in July... They've created their own miniature holy war. Yes. Against themselves. I know. In July, the news station received a videotape containing footage of the Black Mass in which a screaming virgin is supposedly sacrificed. There's no way she was a virgin. I mean, there's no way she was sacrificed. (laughs) Whatever. Well, the video is very murky and the woman is always off camera. So while this hoax is all unfolding, the Bolognese branch decides to duplicate the experiment in Bologna. So in June of 1996, a human skull is left in the luggage locker of the local train station with a message addressed to Il Resto del Calino. Who's that? The popular Bolognese tabloid. Mm. But the note is signed by Il Cacciatore de Satana. The hunter of Satan? Yeah. Okay. It's a mysterious group claiming to have subtracted the skull of Bambina de Satana. The baby of Satan. The Satan baby. They subtracted it. Which was a notorious and actual existing satanic sect. Shut the... This is... This this got so absurd so fast. I mean, I expected it. So one of the news stations runs a piece, and a few days later, Luther Blissett uncovers that they did the whole thing. No one believes them. Oh, no. They send in the entire footage of the Black Mass. (laughs) Is it like Cannibal Holocaust? No, it's like Monty Python. Wonderful. After the Virgin is killed, you can see all of the Satanists and the Virgin holding hands, dancing, and singing along. Oh, no. So at the end of the millennium, many of the leaders committed symbolic seppuku. Like Harry Carey? Yeah, like, yes. 
Okay. Ritualistic suicide. Got it. They were going to stop using this name and kind of move on to other projects. So not literal suicide. Yes. And one of these people was Andrea Nutella. Oh, I forgot. Yeah, the, the guy. guy. that has invented this man and all the other things we've talked about. He didn't make all of these, but he was involved in some. Oh my God. I, just, just, I was just on board. I was just enjoying the journey. Now, one other thing that was going on in Italy and Europe um, in the late 90s was this Serbian sculptor. Now, what was going on in Serbia in the late 90s? War. What is it good for? It's war. So Darko Maver is this Serbian sculptor and performance artist. And his works are life-size dummies looking very much like brutalized, maimed, blood-covered corpses. He felt like his art was the target of state censorship. And he first started by leaving these dummies out. The sculptures. The sculptures. Yes, and letting the police find them. It's like anti-Batman. Now, according to the art magazine Timus Celesta and Flesh Out, Maver was arrested in 1997 in Kosovo where, of course, the Serbian army and the Albanians were fighting. He was charged with anti-patriotic propaganda and released after being detained for a few weeks without trial. So this injustice will not go unnoticed. So in Italy, pictures of Maver's work are exhibited in Bologna and Rome. Prestigious highbrow art magazines publish a solidarity appeal, and some respected critics even claim to know the artist personally. Now, in January of 1999... Maver is arrested a second time and detained in a prison in Kosovo. On April 30th, Darko Maver is found dead in his prison cell. The Free Art Campaign issues a press release that circulates on various mailing lists, together with an image of Maver dead, saying the official version states this is a suicide. We suspect that Maver was summarily executed. We are eyewitnesses of another uncounted crime. To their outrage. The art community has taken notice. It's set up. But like he, this he, is not Luther Blissett caliber hoaxing. Like this is this guy is in the official we know what we're talking about art community. Like this yeah. is not outsider art yeah, at there, this point. There are galleries He's everywhere. Been accepted. Yes, people love him. It's in all the high art magazines, these gruesome photos so, of these like, what are, creations. What do they look like? Like there are like aborted fetuses. Oh. There are people like being vivisected. Well, I don't even know what that means. Like cut in half. Okay. There are people they just look like they're just flew out of a wrecked car. You know, just all kinds of gruesome looking sculptures that he's made. So like horror movie special effects, but art. Yes. And okay. this is all him you know, sticking it to the man, sticking it to censorship. Okay. So the art community's on it. Does anything in the official channels happen for him now? Oh, he's just another Serbian. No one will investigate. No justice. There's no way to. It's it's the middle of a war. Fine. A battlefield. So this does kind of touch on some of the things that the Luther Blissett group was interested in. Like it definitely is opposed to censorship. It's definitely subversive. Uh, You know, these gruesome images making people look at the thing they'd normally turn away from. I can see some similarities with him, but he's Serbian. So I don't know how he gets involved in that group. So. After the mass suicide, after the sepulcher of all of Luther Blissett, they release one final thing. Okay. The great art uh, swindle. Oh, no. The life and death of Darko Maver was pure invention. It was a myth designed to expose the mechanism by which the art system thrives and replicates itself. 
The dreadful images of fetuses and aborts, alleged evidence of Darko's activities at the Belgrade Academy, were true, yet without effort, we made people believe that they were huge PVC and fiberglass sculptures. But they weren't. They were made of images of real deaths, rapes, and violence of many kinds. No dummy ever existed. No Serbian newspaper ever reviewed Maver's performance. And all this inventory of horrifying images can be found on the internet site www.rotten.com and other sites like it, accessible to anybody who has a strong stomach. Maver's very face was actually that of Roberto Capelli, a long-term member of the Luther Blissett Project in Bologna. I feel subverted. (laughs) Oh, this is gross. Like, good for them. They showed that people will just like ooh and ah over anything if you tell them it's art. I mean, we already had the golden toilet. Did we really need aborted fetuses? But, oh, God. Like, it's on the walls of art galleries, these crime scene photos. And people are just like, he's a genius. Of course they are. Because they took the horror out of it. They made it fiberglass and PVC. I just like, God. They changed the relationship uh, one has. With with art. With the art and with that image. And with the event the image portrays. <sighs> A brain. So with Luther Blissett, with this man, we're creating what one of the co-founders of the Luther Blissett Project says was mythopoesis. That is not something that is, of course... Unique. Yeah. To the Luther Blissett Project. Of course, it's something. That's, that exists in the, the world. That is the generation of mythology. Right. We're just creating myths. That's all it means. Social process of creating myths. And he says, but we do not mean false stories. We mean stories that are told and shared, retold and manipulated by a vast and multifarious community. Stories that may give shape to some kind of ritual, some sense of continuity between what we do and what other people did in the past. A tradition. It does not entail any narrow-mindedness, conservatism, or forced respect for the past. Revolutions and radical movements have always found and told their own myths. So he compared them to the folk heroes of Europe, created by struggling groups. Oh, well, you could compare this to the great American folk heroes, too. I mean, this is, it's any group that feels disenfranchised that needs a hopeful place to see, a hopeful place to look, in order to understand their relationship to the larger world. And it also gives weight to your cause and validity to your very existence in that space. You're defining your own relationship between yourself and your surroundings through myth-making. Right, exactly. And, you know, you have that kind of Marxist idea Mm -hmm. of, you know, God is the opiate of the masses. Mm -hmm. You know, these stories don't serve a purpose. Bullshit. Exactly. And then they're sometimes called neo-Marxist, but in this, he directly says that this is not that. That myths are not always instruments of class domination. Myths can have, in fact, a progressive and counter-hegemonic function as long as their movement and transformation is not arrested. They weren't just telling stories. These stories were performing a task. So they say, because to tell a story is to share, that is, to make a community. I suddenly feel like what we are doing... Is radical. <laughs> so when you share a story, you make a community. Oh, stories are an integral part of a community, of course. But are they the genesis? They can be. That's not just a story. That's not just a story. 